If you have your Bible open up, I'm going to be reading from um, Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Genesis 1, 26. All right, so it's going to be up on the screen. Let's read. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. You know, as Christians, the creation narrative is one of those stories that can very easily become all too familiar. It's so familiar that we sometimes miss its significance. It's so familiar, we know it all too well, that, that we don't let the creation narrative that happened back then inform us in the here and now. In the beginning, we're introduced to our God. In the beginning, we hear him. We can imagine him in his glory. We see his power and we see his might. In the beginning, we're introduced to the world as it was created to be, a far cry from our here and now. In the beginning, we see a world not only created good, but created so good that God himself, the one who is the embodiment of all that is good, he looks at his created world and he says, wow, I done good. In the beginning, we see the world as it was created to be. We Christians today have become so familiar with the creation narrative that we miss or ignore the beautiful wonder that is on display in Genesis 1. Do you see God's majesty here? Do you see God moving the cosmos from chaos to order? Do you see God moving the world from emptiness to fullness, from death to life? Do you see God doing what he always does, working together for the good of those who love him? See, I don't think the first believers ever struggled with downplaying the creation narrative as much as we do. It never became so familiar that they missed its significance. They never knew it so well that the creation story failed to inform them in the year and now. They heard from the Lord God. They saw his glory, and in creation, they saw his power and might. They knew the world was not as it should be. But unlike many believers today who bemoan that fact, who join the refrain that sings, it's all too much. What can little old me do about it? Our problems seem so big, I just seem so small. No. They never sang that song. Instead, they went back. They went back to the creation narrative of Genesis. They went back to the world as it was created to be. They went back to the garden because they knew, like we should know now, that as humans, we learn best and more completely from our past. We can only live in the present, yes. We can only and always hope for a better tomorrow, but we learn best and more completely from our past. For the first believers, Genesis 1 was not just an introduction to God. It was an explanation of how God works for them and with them in our world. It was an invitation to build their lives with the Lord God as their foundation. It was a confirmation that faith in the Lord God instructed how to live in this life, how to worship in this life, and how to relate to the world of your everyday scenes. This morning, we will continue learning what it means to be brethren in Christ. We'll continue by examining another one of our core values, the beliefs that make us who we are, the truths we desire to be self-evident among us, the essence of who God has called us to be before him and before our world. Like I've stated a few times before, knowing our history is only the first part 
of learning what it means to be brethren in Christ. The second part in learning what it means to be brethren in Christ is knowing our values, knowing the things that we hold dear, knowing the truths that we live to set forth, knowing the central beliefs that make us who we are. My goal again this morning, and until we get through all of these core values in the coming months, is for us to examine these beliefs that are so etched into our DNA that they encompass, that they are who we are as brethren in Christ. Our core values were born of the Holy Spirit with reliance on God. They were born after studying his scriptures together. They were born after prayerfully together seeking insights from God and how he has revealed himself to us in our history, in our tradition. This morning, let us examine our fifth core value. I'm going to put it on the screen. And I'm going to ask you guys to please read with me. Belonging to the community of faith, we value integrity in relationships and mutual accountability in an atmosphere of grace, love, and acceptance. One of the things I felt the Lord really impress upon me in preparation for this message is that if we desire, if we truly desire to know what it means to belong to the community of faith, we must be, go, we must be willing to go back to where community was created and created good in the eyes of God. We must go back to the Garden of Eden, for there God laid the foundation to instruct and to empower us to live together as one. Like the saints and believers of old, by going back to Eden, back to the Garden, we can find how it is that we are created in relation and for one another. See, as Christians, we know that Jesus is the foundation of our faith. Amen? We celebrate Jesus our Christ because he, the God of eternity past, came to this earth for what? To redeem, to reconcile, to renew the world that is not as it should be. He was born, he lived, he loved. He died and he rose again so that you and you and you and me, so that we, the lost children of our Father, can come back home. Amen? Amen. We celebrate Jesus because he carries us. Amen? Amen? When we reach the end of our rope, he carries us. When the trials and storms of life comes, and oh, they will surely come and come again and come again and come again. But when the trials come, he carries us. When the storms come, he looks at us. He says, keep my eyes. Keep your eyes on me, dear child. Don't worry about the storm out there. Keep your eyes on me. Why? Because if you look at me, you can walk on water. Amen? When the burdens and the bills comes, or when the health goes, he carries us. When our heart breaks or when life seems so big and we seem so small, he carries us. When we don't see him, when we don't feel him, he still carries us. Our God is so good that even when we don't know him, even when we don't want to know him, even if we're just thinking about ourselves, he still carries us. He is the one that joins us all together and builds us up together. Everything we believe is based on Christ. He makes it possible for us to enter into God's family. He makes it possible for us to be family with one another. He makes it possible for us to live not only for God, but to live for one another together. Jesus is the foundation of our faith. Amen? Amen. You know, he even says as much. Remember the parable of the wise and foolish builders in Matthew 7? There in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching all his disciples then, and we disciples today, this is how I want you to live. You want the shortcut to know what it means to be brethren in Christ? Memorize Matthew 6 to 8 and see me tomorrow. That's, we call that the canon within the canon. When Jesus talks, we listen. When Jesus says, this is how you live, we try to do so. But in this parable, he says to those who hear, he says, all of you who hear my words and put them into practice, you're wise. You're wise women and you're wise men who build your house on a rock. For the wise, when the wane comes and beats on your house, 
When the storm comes, and yes, they will surely come. When they come, because your house is built on the rock, your house will remain standing. Then the Lord says, all of you who hear my words and do not put them into practice, you're like foolish women and you're like foolish men who build their house on sand. For the foolish, when the rain comes, when the storm comes, and yes, it will surely comes, your house will not stand, your house will fall down. Jesus said back then and says to us this morning, build your house on me. Amen? To help flesh this out, as I taught this to our youth this past week, I had them answer a few questions in small groups. Questions like, what does your dream house look like? What are the special features? What all do you think goes into building a house? Does the order that is used to put the house together matter? Why or why not? And then I ended with this. Jesus wants to be the rock and foundation of your life. What does that mean to you? One of our youth quietly raised her hand and she said, well, our life is like a dream house, and we might have ideas about what we want it to look like, about how good it can be, but if we give our life, if we give our dream houses to God, that is the only place where it is safe and becomes the best that God wants from us. To be honest with you, you can't say it better than that, right? For me personally, this is the joy of community right then and there. This is the meaning of the proverb that iron sharpens iron. This is what it means that God speaks to us and through us. We just have to make space. We just have to take time. We have to take the time to listen and to hear. Jesus is the foundation of our faith. Amen? Amen. But, but there is something distinctly different between Jesus being the foundation of our faith and everything we believe in and Jesus being the foundation for belonging to the community of faith. Yes, Jesus is the reason we belong to God's family. Yes, Jesus is the reason we're a family with one another. Yes, Jesus is the reason that we can look at each other and say we're sisters and brothers, though our world calls us black, white, brown, and yellow, though our world calls us rich and poor, though our world calls us urban and suburban, though our world calls us PhDs and GEDs, though our world calls us young and old, though our world calls us saints and sinners, though our world calls us Republicans and Democrats, Jesus is the reason we are family, amen? And we are family. And I want you to make sure you get this this morning. We are family, not in spite of our differences. Right? That's too negative for me. We are family, not in spite of our differences, but with our differences. Amen? Jesus, because of Jesus, you and I are sisters and brothers, brothers and sisters. In Jesus, we're children of our God and King. We are his family together. Jesus is the reason we belong to the community of faith. But if we want to learn the foundation of what it means to belong, we have to go further than just our church here in Harrisburg. We have to go further than just Acts 2, which is what every nice church likes to do. We have to go further even than the saints of the Old Testament. We have to go where? To Eden. We have to go back to the garden. We have to go back to Genesis 1 because it is there that God sets out what it means to be community. If we want to know, if we want to learn, if we want to hold on to what it means to be community, we have to go back to the garden. We have to go back to Eden. We have to go back to community because it was there, it was created. It wasn't created with the children of Israel. It wasn't created in Acts 2. It wasn't even created in Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, and I think we try our best to be community. It was created in Genesis 1. Genesis 1.26 begins, Then God said, let us, wait a minute, let us, let us. See, if we read this only from our 2013 lenses, 
It's easy to miss the significance. It's easy to just see our own understanding. It's even easier to miss the wonder of this all. You see, many Christians do well. We see this verse and we say, let us. Yeah, that's our proof right there. That's our proof that in the beginning there was Father, there was Son, there was Holy Spirit. I mean, we're not British. We don't say give us a kiss. When it says let us, that's more than one. And I struggle with that. That's a tangent. I struggle with the fact that the British, the English invented the English language, but they would say give us a hug. Us is plural. That's just me. Let's get back to the sermon. In the very beginning, we say, when God says, let us make man in our image, we say, yeah, there's our proof right there. This is what, when we read in the first verse or two, when it says the Spirit of God hovered over the earth, that's the Holy Spirit. When we read in Colossians, when Paul writes that in the very beginning, in God the Son, Jesus Christ, all things were created, all things in heaven, things on earth, things visible and things invisible, Christ was before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. We know this. We see let us, and we just say, yeah, there's our proof of Trinity. But is that the significance of the verse? Is that the significance of those two words? Our 2013 lenses says yes. It's all about Father, Son, and Spirit. It's all about proving how present and active they were in creation. But here's the question we need to ask ourselves this morning. What about the first hearers of the creation story? What would they have heard in Genesis 1.26? When they heard one, let us make man in our own image, what did that mean to them? Did they think Father, Son, and Spirit? Let's see what they thought. Remember, so far in Genesis 1, God is very intentional to say that he is the one almighty God. He is one. He is Elohim. He is the almighty God. He's the fullness of everything that is good. Almighty God alone is the one who says, let there be light. And there was light. He alone created the day and the night. He alone created the skies and the heavens. He alone created the land and the seas the plants and the trees. God alone created the galaxies, the constellations, the sun, the moon, the birds of the air, the creatures of the sea, and every living thing. God is very intentional for 25 verses in Genesis to say, I am one. This is important because, you see, everybody who heard this story for the first time, they all had different creation stories. You think our big debate today is, you know, evolution versus, you know, intelligent design and, and, and creation versus evolution. And, and that's our big debate. But these are, this is what they debated. This is what they heard in the beginning, right? In creation, God's people all over the world had been taught for hundreds and maybe thousands of years that the earth was a creation of not one God, but many gods. That the earth, they had been taught that all we live and see was not a result of some God on high just speaking into existence. It was the gods who fought each other. They killed one another. They had not only they had been taught that mankind, not the pinnacle of creation, mankind was an afterthought to the gods. In some creation narratives, they killed the gods, ripped them apart, and that's where humans came from. This is what the people knew. When we read in Genesis 1, we feel good about ourselves. God made us in his image. This is mind-blowing to them. This is like picture someone who has struggled with depression and, and hasn't known the value of who they are, of who God says they are their entire life. You know, it's like the man in the cave, right? He's lived in darkness for his whole life, and then he steps out into the light, and he goes, wow, the trees, the sun, the stars, the moon, the animals. For them, this was like the man coming out of the cave. Because up until this point of history, every single human being believed that you were an afterthought to God. That God fought with each other and they killed one another and they just made you to be slaves to them. 
So when we read in Genesis 1, you're created in my image, you're created in my likeness, step out of the darkness and step into the light to realize that the God on high, the one who spoke the world into existence, takes the time to make you. The backdrop for this was the backdrop for everyone. You know, the Israelites, we, we like to think that, oh, Moses put together the first five books of the Bible. They told them this story. The Israelites weren't affected. If you don't think the Israelites were affected, use your little iPads, whatever. Look up Egyptian creation myths. All these stories were very, very similar to all these different people. But yet in Genesis 1, what do we have? In this true creation narrative, we're introduced not to chaos, but divine order. We're introduced not to God's killing, but God instructing through the power of his words. We're introduced to not a story of violence, but a story of peace, a story of goodness, a story of the world created as it should be. Yet when we reach to Genesis 1.26, for 25 verses, one God, one God, one God, when we reach here, there's a break in the creation narrative. God, who had been so intentional about saying, I am one, when it comes to creating mankind in his image, he says, let us. See, God not only makes room for Father, Son, and Spirit, but he unabashedly says this, and I want you to get this this morning. He says, God, we are one in community. It is not just about saying the Father was there, and the Son was there, and the Spirit was there. It is saying, I am God, and I am one in community. And that's the first lesson of community, isn't it? God is community. God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. Three distinct persons who all work together for and with one another in community. And isn't that community in its essence? Isn't community a distinct people choosing to unite, choosing to live together, choosing to work for one another, choosing to live in love with one another in harmony? Isn't that what community really is? The lesson here simply is this. God is community. This is who God is in essence. Thus, community is what God has created us to be. You get that this morning? When we say we're created in the image of God, it is not just about you. It is about all of us. It's not just about what you look like. It's about all what we look like. It's not just about what you do. It's about what we all do. And that brings us to the very next section, really the very next word. God says, let us we who live in harmony for and with one another in community, let us make humankind. You know, think about this for a second. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Yet he takes the time to make every single one of us. God spoke. You know, a lot of things, even intelligent design and creation evolution, it's all about how much work and time went into everything that was created. It misses the essence, right? Think about this. The God who spoke, he didn't work hard. He spoke the day and the night into existence, the skies and the heavens into existence, the land and the seas into existence, the plants and the trees into existence. He spoke galaxies and constellations into existence. He spoke the sun and the moon into existence. He spoke the birds of the air, the creatures of the sea into existence. The God who spoke every single living thing into existence took the time to make you, you. Think about that for a second. You know that youth I told you about earlier, she stands on the shoulders. 
You know, when she says we are God's dream houses, she sits right in line with many lovers of God who have come before. Remember King David? You remember what he said? He looked up and he said, the heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Great is the Lord, worthy to be praised. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation should commend his work to another, and they should tell your mighty acts. He spoke that into existence. David loved God's creation, but when it came to humankind, the pinnacle of God's creation, remember what David says? I praise God. Why? Because the God who spoke the world into existence fearfully and wonderfully made me. God spoke every living thing on earth into existence, but he took the time to make you, you. That youth is also in line with the Apostle Paul. In his letter to Ephesians, he says, Sisters and brothers, you're God's workmanship. You're his masterpieces. You know, I tell the kids this all the time, but I think the more I, I interact with adults, you need to hear this too. This is the cure to the self-esteem blues. You might think I'm a little cocky, but my Bible says I can do it. I want all of you to walk by a mirror when you feel a little down about yourself. Walk by a mirror and keep telling yourself, I am God's masterpiece. I'm not an accident. I am not what the world says I am. I'm not defined by my job. I'm not defined by my likes and dislikes. I'm not defined by my political party. I'm not defined by the family I'm in. I'm not even defined by the church I go to. I am God's masterpiece. That's what Paul said. God speaks the world into existence. But not only does he fearfully and wonderfully make each of us, he fearfully and wonderfully makes each of you his workmanship. You know, the Greeks used to call Eureka when they found something new. I think it's Archimedes stepped in. I wish I could go back a couple thousand years. He stepped into the tub and realized that, well, when you step into the tub, whatever water spilled out is what water must have gone in. And I remember him all through history for that because he saw the water jump out of a tub. But when they came to a great, great, great invention, they would say Eureka. And how about that this morning? Every time God looks at you, he doesn't just see a great invention. He sees his eureka. He sees his masterpiece. Amen? God has made all of us in his own image, all of us in his likeness. You know, some people like to point out here that being in God's image means we're pictures of God. They believe that, you know, just like in the ancient society, kings would leave statues. We don't ever see this today, right? Kings would leave statues of themselves all over the empire. This was to remind the people that I have dominion over you. Look at my statue. We, in turn, then, would be living symbols and co-rulers of God, co-rulers with God on earth, to show all of creation, not just one another. We are created to show all of creation what God looks like. A lot of people believe that, and they just might be right. Some people say that we are made in God's likeness. This has to speak to the fact that we as humans, and this isn't cocky at all, we as humans have superior moral, ethical, spiritual, and intellectual capabilities. Although I watch Central Pennsylvania News and I struggle with that part, but we'll go with it. A lot of people believe that being in God's likeness means we're superior morally, ethnically, spiritually, intellectually. A lot of people believe that, and they might be right. Some people even say God's likeness explains our ability to reason, our ability to create or procreate, our ability to progress over time. Again, you watch the news, you might struggle with that last one. Are we really progressing? A lot of people believe that, though. That's what it means to be in God's likeness. That's what it means to be in God's image. However, I think if all it means that we are created in God's image and likeness, if that's all it means that we're co-rulers, if that's all it means that we're smarter, if that's all it means that we can create, 
I think we miss the essence, the wonderful beauty that we can see in Genesis 1. Yes, we are living symbols of our God. Yes, we are created to be co-rulers with him. Yes, we are blessed with superior moral, ethical, spiritual, intellectual capabilities. Yes, we have the ability to reason. Yes, we can create. Yes, we can progress. But let us never forget that by creating us in his image and likeness, God has created us in community and for community. God has created us in harmony and for harmony. Jesus didn't just die for reconciliation now. In Genesis 1, you were created for reconciliation forever. God did not create Adam alone. You know, a lot of times I say some of this stuff, people look at me crazy. But think about it this way. We do well to tell our people and we tell one another that we're created in the image of God. That's sometimes that's the greatest thing you could tell someone, right? When they're not living right, they're not doing what they're supposed to be like, you are God's child. You're created in the image of God. However, sisters and brothers, we must always remember that's only half of the truth. See, it is not you alone that's created in the image and likeness of God. It is you and you and you and me. It is not you alone that's the child of God. It is you and you and you and me. It is us. It is we. It is us together. It is we who have been created in the image of God. So we need to not tell half the truth and say you're created in the image of God. We need to know that we're all created in the image of God. You know how I know this? Adam. Adam was not created alone, was he? The Bible doesn't say, you know, God created Adam alone in his image and likeness. That would be impossible because God is community in harmony with one another. The Bible also didn't say God created Eve alone in his image and likeness. That too would be impossible. Why? Because God is community and in harmony. What does your Bible says? It says God created Adam and Eve together. Because together, and not alone, together we reflect the image of God. You hear that this morning? Well, a lot of us who grew up in the church, we've been conditioned to think I reflect the image of God. But if you go back to the beginning, it is never I, it is always we. It is never you, it is always us. Together, together, together we reflect the image of God. Amen? This then should inform us, shouldn't it? It should inform us that we're not created for ourselves. It should inform us that we're not created only for those who we choose to associate with. We're not created only for those who love us or who we love. Humankind was created for God, but humankind was created for one another. Humankind is created in the image and likeness of God. Why? We're created to be in community, in harmony with one another. We together reflect the image of God. Now, this might be a little hard for some of us. Some of you right now, as I'm talking, I'm going a little fast, but some of you are probably down looking down at your iPads. Maybe you, you know, maybe you're not looking at your iPad, but you're wishing you were. Some of us are pretending to turn our iPhone on silent, when really we're just scrolling through our iCalendars and maybe iTunes. Maybe your child or teenager is playing games on listening to the iPod Touch. More than marketing genius, more than marketing genius, the folks at Apple have sadly summed us up, haven't they? We're the I generation. We live for me. We have been conditioned to look out for what? Me and mine. We are taught to only see life as progress if what? If we do financially better than our parents. We have been taught to, and we believe sometimes, this lie that, that life is not about you, it's not about us, it's not about we, it's about me. We're the I generation. See, it's a lie because 
If we look at God, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, if we go back to the very beginning, we see and we should learn that it's never about me, it's about me. It's never about you, it's about us. It's never about being the I generation, it's about being the community of faith, amen? You know, in this world that is becoming overwhelmingly more personalized and all about the individual, Genesis 1 calls us back to the garden. God simply reminds us that, yes, he is community, but guess what? We are in his image. We are in his likeness. We are to live for God, but we are also to live for one another. You know, there's an artist by the name of Derek Webb. He has a beautiful song called The Church, and he plainly says it like this, if you love me, you will love the church. If you love me, you will love my people. If you love me, you know, I think this is what we struggle with in this personalized society. We can all, you just name, a, you just name something. We can all tell you everything that's wrong with it, right? And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to ignore that some of us have been hurt by church. I'm not trying to ignore that some of us went to churches, or maybe we feel this way, I hope you don't, but we go to a church that we feel like there's so many things that's wrong with it. But if you love me, God says, you will love my church. If you love me, God says, you won't just be talking about everything that's wrong. You'll be working to make it right. If you love me, God says, you will love my people. Because the church is never a building, amen? The church is the people. If you love me, you will love my church. See, the third lesson from the garden is that together we have been blessed with dominion and purpose in our world. Adam and Eve... Not single-handedly, Adam and Eve together are given power and dominion over the fish of the sea, the cattle, the land animals, over all the earth. It is both Adam, it is both Eve. Adam's not superior, Eve is not inferior, Eve is not superior, Adam's not inferior. If you go back to Genesis 11, 1, if you go back to Genesis 1, if you go back to Genesis 1, before sin came into the world, when the world was created as it should be, Adam and Eve are not just equal. They're perfectly meshed together because together we reflect the image of God. Genesis 1.26 reads, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the wild animals. So often we do a disservice to God, and if we're honest, we do a disservice to one another because what are we taught to do? We're taught to seek my role and purpose in this world. We do a disservice to the community of faith by only doing what? Seeking out my spiritual gifts, my skills, my abilities. So often we do a disservice to ourselves by thinking that my life purpose can be found in family. It can be found in friends. It can be found in education. It can be found in job or vocation. It can be found in ministry. It can be found in my gifts or, or all the blessings God's given me. But the truth is, what we have will never matter as much as who we are. You hear that again? What we have will never matter as much as who we are. What my gift is will never matter more than how I'm living. What my blessing is will never matter more than how I'm working and serving this community of faith. What our gifts are will never matter as much as who we're called to become more and more like, and that's Jesus our Christ, amen? If we are community and called and designed to be a community of faith, and we are then, and we must stop only seeking and stop only looking out for the individual, no, we must start to pray. 
We must start to live. We must start to work for God's purpose for the entire church, for the entire family of faith. It's not just about what you can do for God or what God wants to do with your life. It's about the community. It's about the family of faith. It is not just what can God do for me. You have to change the refrain. You have to change the song. We all have to start saying this more and more each day. It is what God can do with us. It is what God can do in us. It is what God can do to us. It is what God can do for us. It's what God can do with us. Together, we're called to share God with our world. Together, we are called to love God. Together, we are called to work for God. You know, the passage ends with this. It says, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant in the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit and seed in it. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food, and it was so. In our world of, of what can God do for me? And I said our world, because a lot of times as Christians, we do a good job saying everything is wrong with the big bad world. But I'm just talking to Christians this morning. I'm just talking to the church this morning. In our world of what can God do for me? What can God do for me and mine? We often lose sight of what God desires to do in and through us. One of the greatest tragedies of the Christian faith is that we often tend to believe that God blesses us for us alone. We tend to believe that, that God has gifted us for us alone. He didn't. He never gifts you. He never blesses you for you. It's always for him and his community. It's always for him and his church. It's always for him and our world. It's never just for you. God never just blesses you for you alone. God never desires to bless you. And this is why I think this is important. God never desires to bless you only for your glory. When we make God's blessing only about me and mine, we make God's blessing only about me, who gets the glory? And that's only for a little while you get the glory because people don't like you. But if you live for God, if you work for God, if you live for the community, if you live for your world, if you live together, we are one in God. He gets the glory. Amen. You see, in the garden, we get a summary introduction in these verses about the food chain. I'm not a scientist. I love technology, but I'm not going to front. I'm not a scientist. I don't even intend to even try to pretend you get that? I was a little wordplay. I don't intend to even try to pretend that I'm a scientist. But that said, in the garden you see a food chain, don't you? In the garden everything has purpose. Everything works not for itself, but for the betterment of the community. Eve and Adam are not just given what to eat, but every single creature is provided for. Adam and Eve and everything in the garden are witnesses that in community, in the family of faith, we are all to what? Be a service to and be a service for one another. Now, I've really been struck in the last few, minutes, few months, really, that as, as a family of faith and a community of believers, we are all called to be a home and a hospital. You know, we talk about what it means that, that we're all to be in service to and for one another. We're all called to be a home and a hospital. Stay with me. We're almost done. Everybody's favorite African theologian, not me. I'm like seventh on my list. St. Augustine. St. Augustine once called the church to be a home, a home for sinners and saints. To do so, Augustine challenged us, the body of Christ, to be a hospital and not a country club. 
In this personalized society, we struggle with that, if we're honest. Everything we don't like about church, most 99% goes into what? The country club mentality. But we're a hospital, not a country club. Amen? He saw our human nature as fallen. He saw it as wounded. He saw it as in need of healing. In the church, Augustine, though, he saw the instrument, the instrument of God to administer his grace for his people, to be healed of those same wounds, to be healed of those same addictions, to be healed of those same hurts. Yes, we live in a fallen world, but we, the community of faith, are the instrument that God has chosen to heal this world. Amen? He believed that our complete healing would come in heaven. But only in heaven are you going to be completely healthy, right? Only in heaven are you going to be completely righteous. So he called us. He says, for now on this earth, all of you have to recognize not only that there's sin in the world, but recognize there's sin in ourselves. Recognize that as a church, our patients are not only the people in our everyday scenes, but more often than not, the patient is me. Our God is in the healing, redemption, restoration, and renewing business. And if we're going to be a hospital, so must we. In our community, in our garden, and yes, in our entire world, we must be the hospital that brings healing and restoration. We must be the hospital that welcomes all our father's lost children back home. And that brings us to the second part. We, the church, must continue to not only be a hospital, but also a home for our father's lost children. As a hospital, we must be reaching out and making ourselves available to help bring healing to our wounded world. To the beaten, to the broken, to the addicted, we must be a hospital. But as a home, we must become a place, and we must become the people where the lost can find themselves as God created them to be. We must become a place, and we must become a people where the stranger is a brother where the stranger is a sister, where the person who looks different than me is still my brother, where the person who's more educated than me is still my sister, where the person who was the lost child who was out there wilding out is still my father's son, where the person who grew up in the church and did love God but did it all for the wrong reasons, did it all about me, is still my sister. We must be not only a hospital, we have to be a home as well. We must be the place that all people can come home. And we, the thing about our home, and this is where we end with, is just simply this. Our home is where God, Christ, holds us together. And our home is when we realize where God has to be greater than my wants, than my needs, than everything I look for. God is my community, and how do I serve him here? How are you being a hospital to the people around you? How are you being a home to your garden? to every creature in your house, every creature in your everyday scenes. Where are you on the food chain? Are you a consumer? Are you a producer? See, if you go back to Eden, it doesn't even matter. Because if we're honest, there's times in life we've been producers. There's times in life we've been consumers. All that matters is that at every single time, we must be living for one another. We must be loving one another. We must be serving one another. And then the passage ends with this. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning, the sixth day. The final lesson from Eden simply is this. Together, not alone, together we have been created good. You hear that? That's everything the world says we're not. You know, Calvin, I read a great article that said, Calvin did a lot of good things. One of the worst things he did for Western Christians is that he, st he spent so much time on how fallen we are that it takes even the, the most loving Christian, it takes us a lifetime to just realize I am created good. 
that God created me good, that God didn't mess up in Genesis 1. Final lesson from Eden is together we are God's children. Together we're his inheritance. Together we his treasure. I want to close by simply saying this. We are not just the body of Christ together. We are also members of one another. We're not only the children of our God and King, we are sisters and brothers to one another. We're not who we say we are. We're not even who the world says we are. We're only who God says we are. We're not a building. We're not even a denomination. We're a people. We're God's people. We're family, one another together. We're his inheritance. You know, I, I think this church is very much God's inheritance. Here's what I mean by that, and I'll close with this. For my final, I'll close with this. I believe Itchbick is God's inheritance. And I, I think this is the challenge for all of us. When we think about what it means to be community, what it means to be God's people together, it's very easy to come to our church, read our vision, read our, our mission, and fall in love with us. It's very easy to, to see our ministries, to see our outreach, and say, wow, this church is amazing. It's very easy to walk in that door, and this isn't because anything we do, this is the Holy Spirit. It's very easy to walk in that door and feel loved and feel like this is a home, and feel like this is a hospital, and feel like these are your sisters and brothers. But here's the challenge. If we're created in community, if we're, if we're created to and for one another, it can't just be the church's vision. It has to be what? Our vision. It, can't, it can no longer just be the church's ministries. It has to be what? Our ministries. It can no longer be the church's community. It has to be what? our community. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up. You know, as brethren in Christ, we say we value integrity and relationships, mutual accountability, atmosphere of grace, love, and acceptance. But I think, I think the heart of what we mean is this. Together, we are one. Together, we reflect the image of our God. Together, we are community. Together, we share in his love and in his ministry to our world. Together, we are good in the eyes of God. Together we are his inheritance. Together we are his treasure. And together we are his people. We're going to close by singing Jesus Messiah. And I want to open up the, uh, um, I know we're running late. I got a mission trip to go to, so I'm probably a little running late more than you are. But I really, really feel if we want to just take some time, I'm going to ask the, the intercessors to come forth. And I want to give you the time to pray. But if you don't have, if you have anything personal, if if you have anything personal, come up, we'll pray for you. If you don't know the, the, the joy of being in community, you don't know what it means to follow Jesus, please come up, we'll pray for you. But I want to extend this to everyone. If we're going to say together we're one, I want to give us at least five minutes. We all got busy lives, I know that. But let's give God five minutes. Pray with the people next to you. You want to come up, we'll pray for you. But we can't have a whole sermon on community and togetherness and not take five minutes to what? Pray together. Let's pray for oneness of the body. We'll sing the song, and I want them to just sing in the background. Intercessors are going to be up here for prayer. But look at your neighbor and just spend five minutes praying for us. Amen? I just want to give you the, the chance. If you got to go, keep going. But they're going to keep playing and singing. If you want to keep praying together, please take the time to pray together. But I just want to release you and, and dismiss you. Our Father and our God, we thank you that together we are one. We thank you that together we make up the community of faith. We thank you that we're not made for individuality. We're not made for, for all about me. We're made for us. So, God, as we depart now, we just pray that you, you shine our light through us. God, in our gardens this week, in our lives this week, in our communities this week, help us to live to and for one another. Help us to shine your light. 
God, you've given us light to give to the world. Let us go out there and shine your light for you. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We thank you that you are indeed community and you call us to be community together, to love one another, to be your family. In God's precious name we pray, amen. Amen.